welcome to the Evidence-Informed Teaching Podcast. Are you a teacher wanting to improve your classroom practice and deliver excellent teaching through access to research? Do you have a passion for teaching and are looking to connect with other like-minded colleagues through professional discussions? The Charter College has partnered with TeacherTap to support teachers to deliver excellent teaching through access to research and we invite you to be part of this community. On this podcast you will hear from fellow teachers, research experts and you have the opportunity to be part of this professional discussion. You can find out more about the Charter College of Teaching and TeacherTap in the show notes and if you find this episode helpful why not share it with a teacher friend take a screenshot and post it on your social media or even better leave us a five-star written review welcome back to the second in our two-part series where we are chatting with josh goodrich from step lab josh is the founder and ceo of step lab an organization that supports schools to implement effective instructional coaching He's the UK's leading thinker and writer on instructional coaching and is driven by the belief that teacher coaching can develop great teachers and, in turn, transform the life chances of students. Josh has previously worked as an English teacher, school leader and teacher and learning lead for a group of 50 high deprivation schools across the UK and he's currently serving as the deputy principal of a school in London. In today's episode, we pick up the second part of the conversation where Josh is chatting with Kat Scutt around how to implement instructional coaching in schools. And we'll talk about the second part of the process, which is implementation. What I'm talking about here is what Kat, you're an expert teacher. You diagnose what you need to work on, you know, without Mark, without me telling you. You're like, oh, you know, I think I need to... Um, circulate more regularly when students are doing independent writing so that I can get a sense of what they're writing about in their books. I'm like, cool, that sounds like a great thing to work on. Now, you are going to go into your classroom the next lesson and and not do that because that's the nature of teaching. We forget, we get busy, we have habits, you know, that are pushing us in another direction. Now, for for me as your coach to help you implement that change, I am going to want to model it or at least work with you to build a model. I'm going to definitely need to plan that change with you. So when are you going to do it? What's your lesson on? Which moment in the lesson are you going to do it? What are you going to look for when you circulate? And we had 100% going to do a rehearsal to help you begin to build habit in that area. And in fact, the more experienced you are, the more important it looks like that we're going to need to do those things together. And that's why I think it's really important to split apart diagnosis and implementation, right? It may be that you're able to self-diagnose what you need to work on, which is like the kind of one conception of instructional coaching. Uh, In terms of coaching support to implement, I think like the same ingredients are required, no matter where you are on the novice expert spectrum. I hope that's I hope that's how I've explained that uh, in (laughs) as clearly as I could. Extremely clear. And actually, you know, I'll have you know that I'm brilliant at circulating whilst people are doing independent writing. But my uh, my definite area for, for working would be on clear explanations. And it's so interesting that that's become something that has become so much part of uh, of sort of teacher development and of a focus now, but but wasn't really when I trained. And I know I'm very, uh, this this might become obvious in this podcast, I'm very easy, easily sort of led off into distraction on something else, and which is all great and very interesting and, and wonderful for energizing lessons, but less good for uh, clarity of what I'm actually trying to uh, to get across. So yeah, really interesting to hear that. Um, I guess another thing that you, you 
mentioned when you were thinking about kind of when you were starting up your, your work with StepLab was, of course, that if we want people to be instructionally coached, we need a huge number of expert coaches who have a kind of shared terminology and a shared understanding with those that they're, they're coaching. And again, this is something that's been quite interesting. I've been heavily involved in the, the design of the early career framework and interested in, in sort of seeing how that's rolling out. And of, of course, introducing something of that scale has a, a massive challenge in terms of having the, the coaches and the mentors there to provide the kind of export co expert coaching that's needed um, and, and making sure not just that they're brilliant teachers, but that they're brilliant coaches. And that, again, they have an understanding of the sorts of things that people are learning through the early career framework. And I know that's been um, a huge piece of work um, supporting supporting those mentors. So I'm just going to take a moment to flag that one thing we've just very recently released at the Chartered College of Teaching is a, a new pathway to chartered status specifically for teacher mentors, because we we know the importance of these roles and we really recognize that that they should be having recognition for what they're doing which isn't necessarily always the case so just to flag that that pathway is is now available and actually um anyone out there who has been um an early career framework mentor you also automatically from from doing that will have 10 credits towards chartered status already so you need 100 uh, credits to get chartered status so you've you've done 10 percent in essence by by being a mentor um so just thought I'd, I'd take the moment to flag that but then to come with an actual question you know, how do we identify um, people who might make great coaches? How do we support people to become really great coaches? And and perhaps the most challenging from my perspective is how do we make sure they've got the time to do it? Great question. Yeah, like I think there are various things which you need to have to be a great coach. And I think some of them we should recruit for and some of them we should kind of train for. As I said earlier, going into being a coach of like an encyclopedic broken down knowledge of the component parts of teaching and learning, I think is actually less important. You can learn that, you know, and it's and 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 actually like the idea that it could so being an expert teacher, to put it another way, doesn't mean that you have this granular broken down knowledge. It's a feature of expertise that actually experts forget a lot of what it took to get them there. The best coaches are often teachers who have actually struggled to become really expert. Because, and, and I'm talking about myself a little bit there, because like, I was not a natural teacher. Like, you know, some teachers just have lots of personality traits from pre-teaching, where they can go into the classroom and immediately form really engaging relationships with the students, which makes everything a lot easier. Like, that wasn't me. And, then, I, you know, I don't think it's a lot of teachers. And that I had to learn that. And what I think that meant was that when I'm coaching other teachers who are struggling, maybe in the same area, as many people do... I was able to to like remember the specific steps I had to take to learn it. So I think like being a, a real massive expert teacher, less important, more important. One, I think, is like a belief that teaching ability is not fixed. Uh, I think like, you know, if someone thinks that like, you know, you, we have teachers that are amazing and teachers that aren't and teachers that aren't can't learn to be good. We've probably all heard people express that view before. I think someone with that viewpoint probably is never going to be an amazing coach and will always be a little bit judgy um, when they're coaching a teacher. Like, all oh, that wasn't very good. Whereas I think actually that like a good coach has the mindset that like teaching is really hard. No one is, is nailing it and that every single teacher can get better no matter who they are. And I think that for me, like if I was to recruit, if I was to design a recruitment process for coaches and mentors, I would recruit for those values and less for you know less for the skills 
that's really helpful. And what about the the challenge of how we uh, how we make time for this to happen? To split it into two easy camps, there's kind of two ways to to make instructional coaching work. One is the instructional leader model, and the instructional leader model looks like um, I recruit a small coaching team, often of you know heads of department, middle leaders, senior leaders, or great teachers. And then those few coach the many, right? So, and, and and when I've done that, and lots of other schools do that, and it's certainly quite prevalent in the States, those people all need some time and they need, you know, basically they can't teach that much because they need to be in other people's lessons. And so that way of doing instructional coaching does make instructional coaching expensive um, because you, you have this group of people and you need to, and you need to find a way of freeing them up. Now, model B is the peer coaching model. And the peer coaching model is like you recruit much more widely for your coaching team. You probably accept that the quality of instructional coaching, certainly at first, is is going to be a little bit less good. But because you have a much bigger coaching team, um, everyone might only coach one other person, one person, as it were. And so uh, it's a lot less expensive to run coaching. So in my current school, um, everyone is a coach. What does that mean? Well, it means the ask in the day uh, you know, what do I ask every week for every teacher is I ask them to go and see another teacher and practice for 20 minutes. That, that's quite inexpensive, you know, as in like, we, we obviously make sure that like that's achievable for all of our coaches, but it feels to me like the ask of go, popping into another person's lesson for 20 minutes a week isn't particularly onerous. A big mistake I've made in the past is is then asking those people to find some time in the day to do their feedback meeting. So I did that at my first school. So I was like, right, pop into to your coachee's lesson see them in 20 minutes and then grab some time during a free period to meet them now obviously like that didn't work for me and um, because uh, even though everyone was really enthusiastic a teacher's life is really busy and a free periods anything might happen which you like you might need to plan lessons you might need to deal with some behavior and so what happened is the amount of coaching uh, i'm doing a, a downward graph with my finger i know that podcasts are not a visual medium but basically coaching started to tail off after a while so what i did and this has been a tweak, which I know has worked for tons and tons of the schools that we work with, is I took an after school meeting where every teacher was together and which possibly wasn't used um, as productively as it might be. The, my initial school had a meeting where lots of information was shared, took a long time, could have been done by email. There was some other kind of PD practices where I didn't think worked as well. So I stripped them out and I had that meeting as the coaching feedback meeting. Coaches would get together. The time was part of contracted hours. Person A and person B would sit together. The first half hour, feedback in one direction. The second half hour, feedback in the other direction. We all did it after a while. I tried it in different people's classrooms. After a while, we all did it together in the hall. It just like felt really nice and supportive and people were getting up and modeling in front of other people and the culture got loads better. But essentially that was the most inexpensive way that I, I, I found to do it, right? Everyone coaches one or at the most two people, meaning that people's coaching load in the week is very low. And then you provide the time to do a feedback meeting after school. The downside of that, you have people who are not not very good at coaching at first doing coaching. And so what you need to do if you're going to do it that way, which I also learned, is you have to put quite a lot of time. You have to put quite a lot of energy and resource into training coaches in how to do a good job which is basically what StepLab does. Um, so, you know, I built the tools on StepLab, which support the process of good quality coaching as a result of needing to have, you know, quickly upskill all these coaches. And lots of the kind of coach training materials that we have on StepLab 
our coaching skills builder, which is um, like 20, 10 minute, how to be a great coach, um, little sessions that you can do on the platform. Again, all of these resources are basically to help schools skill coaches up as quickly as possible. Um, so that's the kind of stuff we need to put in place so that coach coaches, they might start off not knowing what they were doing, but they quickly get to a position where they do know what they're doing. And I think over time, what you get, if you do that, it, you know, it can feel at first like, oh man, there's loads of, of, of you know, me mediocre coaching happening, but people learn to do it pretty quickly. And then over time you get a school where like every teacher knows how to make other teachers better at their job, which when you get there feels like a great place to be. Yeah, that sounds great. And I mean, I, I love just the, the sort of relatively simple principle of replacing, um, you know, one meeting with the, the time to do the feedback, because this idea that actually everything new that we add, we need to take something away to make time for is, is not a principle that is universally um, recognised, is it? And it, it's one of the problems that we have with kind of great new initiatives, but that don't get buy in because it's just more work and more work and more work, which is not no. recognised. A, a sort of short one on, on, on that note, allocating coaches subject specific really important less important in secondary in primary no do we need an early years coach an early year specialist to be coaching other early year specialists what are your views on that i have tried a lot of different ways and i've also looked at what the research tells us so we'll start there so if we split off like getting better into um general pedagogy i hate the word generic because i, I don't believe uh, you know i don't I, I like i think it can be like a pejorative like it can feel very negative to be like, oh, that's only generic coaching. Like it's not subject specific. Like actually, but if you do split apart generic and subject specific and ask the question, what's it more important to focus on doing? Generic pedagogy wins. So basically there is specific research on what matters most, helping teachers with generic teaching skills, generic ped or subject specific stuff or subject knowledge. And actually it looks more important to to co it, it, the research says it's more important to help teachers with generic teaching skills. In reality, it, there must be a combination of both, right? If you don't tell people how to put together a great quality curriculum and plan good lessons, then lots of coaching them on teaching strategies isn't going to make them a good teacher. Likewise, if we only develop their subject knowledge, but their classroom delivery, and they can't make students think stuff in lessons, we waste our time there too. What I, as a result, what I tend to do when I well, what I do in the schools where I lead coaching is I have half a term one. I have tried to go pretty generic. I know that what I want to happen and what teachers tend to want to focus on when they start a new school year is relationships, routines, behavior management, high ratio teaching, you know, how to get students to think lots of stuff in lessons. Then I go to subject specific in term two. Because I think teachers at that point feel like they've got like their routines and their core stuff down and then want to focus a bit more on subject. Coaching really changes in its feel when you do that. Teachers do lots more stuff, which feels a lot like more like co-planning, um, which is great and fine. But it's not again, it's, you don't only want it. So then I tend to be like quite loose in term three and think, well, I, I might I might just like see what you know, I might actually look at where teachers are and see who I can specially pair up. Now, there are some areas like early years and actually like languages teaching where I feel like you do need to be a bit more specialized. I've tried to coach Spanish teachers and found it quite difficult. I don't speak Spanish. I'm fine with coaching a history teacher. I I'm pretty fine with coaching a math teacher, like unless I'm it's sixth form maths and where I, I like stop understanding what's going on in the lesson. But like language teachers, I've always found difficult. So I tend to just have language teachers and language teachers paired together. And like 
early years, <laughs> we've got on Step Lab some specific early years action steps, which we have recently put together. But like early years is so different. Like a teacher who teaches year four, they don't use play and like, you know, they don't teach phonics where, you know, and that's why early years is so different. I do think early year specialists do need to be paired together most of the time. Right. It's it's like it's as different to uh, not like other teaching as languages teaching is to, you know, like, you know what, I, what I'm trying to say there. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's it's really important, isn't it? And that, that that can make things more challenging in a way in order to try and kind of make those things work. But I think that the point here, like anything in education is, of course, implementation is everything and that context is everything and, and making the right decisions for, for your settings, everything. And I think the other thing that's quite interesting about this model where kind of everyone is a coach is that presumably there are quite substantial benefits for the person doing the coaching as well. I know certainly across other styles of coaching and mentoring, we see that. And I'm sure it's true for instructional coaching as well. I mean, it makes you really kind of in the same way as observing a lesson is helpful. It makes you really laser hone in on things that perhaps you don't think about and, and are perhaps quite kind of um, instinctive or tacit in some cases. So that's a you know one benefit of not having a, a smaller coaching team, I imagine. That kind of insight that everyone coaching and seeing lots of lessons is better for everyone and better for the school as a whole, like is born out in the research. So the kind of rising tide raises all ships called in the research like spillover effects. So there's a researcher called Sun, who has some really compelling research that says that a, a school with peer coaching, teachers get better at a faster rate than just what their coaching is doing for them. So they they get the improvement from coaching, like they make some weekly improvements based on their action step. But because of the kind of culture and the general sharing of expertise across the school, which comes when you have teachers in and out of each other's lessons all the time, helps teachers to get better at a much faster rate. So yeah, I think for me, like I like a school where what part of what teachers do when they're there is spend time in other teachers' classrooms because I, I just think it kind of like, it does some magic around how teachers think and talk about teaching and learning and, and, and gets teachers kind of doing some stuff the same way in every classroom, which also means that students have a kind of more consistent diet and know what to expect in every room across the school as well, which I think is really helpful for their learning too. That was actually one of the things I, I wanted to jump to is uh, go, going back a bit now you talked about teach like a champion and and the sort of uh, clearly defined practices there and then uh, moving on to a kind of much broader but more specific list of of practices and I think there is something that that is perhaps obvious but nevertheless worth highlighting that in in all of the talk that we've had recently around you know what are the most effective approaches to CPD that is thinking about the sort of CPD approach in itself and instructional coaching is, is an approach to CPD but what is really absolutely crucial in any of these things, of course, is the content or the strategies that is being taught, because in theory, you could use instructional coaching as a really effective way to teach someone to uh, use learning styles um, as a principal in their classroom, for example. Uh, and so we can't kind of separate out the idea of the kind of uh, approach that's being used and the content. So this idea that, you know, it's it's not just instructional coaching, it's instructional coaching in a specific set of practices is quite important, I think. And we need to be clear on what those practices are and our expectations around those and, and how those work um, so that we're not sort of coaching people into doing things that um, they, they're they not going to have the impact that we want. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I think, and and you know, and you, you can see that. Dylan Williams got a great way of, um, of presenting. He says that like good quality PD has a what and a how. So, you know, you need a how that works, you know, and the how is instructional coaching. And, you know, there's there's good evidence that, you know, instructional coaching is, is a form of PD that helps teachers to improve. And if we look at the 
the recent study which came out from Sam Sims, Harry Fletcherwood and others, the EEF study around mechanisms of effective teaching, took me a while to get there. There's this combo of mechanisms which like combined uh, modeling, rehearsal, sharing insights, except goal setting, motivation, et cetera, et cetera. When they're combined and instructional coaching is an effective delivery system for those, like teachers improve, but you also need a what. There's no point helping teachers to get better at, you know, learning styles or, you know, like I got told to do more group work very early in my career and to say less. Students, uh, I did it, but got an outstanding in old Ofsted, but uh, my students definitely didn't learn really anything in those lessons. So we need to make sure that that the the action steps that we set or the curriculum we, we put in place for coaching is full of evidence-based practices. One of the things which I think is really important is that no school should get a book on teaching and learning and think and and just like decide that every teacher is going to do everything in that book one of the most important things that schools can do is take lots of the the best understanding about what great teaching looks like but then like really customize it for their context uh the way i like to think of it is that schools build a vision of excellence which really suits their context like a vision of excellent teaching so on step lab we have you know x number of specific action steps in lots of different areas and I've made this mistake as well. It's like you you give teachers this, like you give it to coaches. Like there's this big list of all the things you can set. Go ahead. Now, in reality, like coaches might not know what those things look like. Um, they might not know what, what a great use of right pair share in a lesson looks like in practice. They might uh, encourage teachers to use that at the wrong moment in their lesson. So I think what schools can do is they can, uh, when they're thinking about working with instructional coaching, thinking about using it is the first thing is like, do you have, a shared vision of what great lessons look like in your school. Is it evidence-based? Have you communicated this vision to your coaches and teachers in a way that like everyone has a good conception of what great looks like? And at that point, have you turned this into a coaching curriculum, like the kind you can build on StepLab? Like, have you, uh, you know, structured this as a load of really fine grained granular action steps that coaches can then set? But I think if you do that, if you go to the granular first before you go, this is what great teaching looks like at our school and and, and uh, help everyone to understand that. I think uh, just like any PD program, uh, you know, it's not going to work particularly well. That makes absolute sense. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it is that important, that kind of vision piece, isn't there? And then being very specific about things. And it's not necessarily about everybody's lesson looking absolutely the same, but it's about understanding the principles that, that underpin a really great lesson and how those might apply in your context and your subject and everything else. I mean, some instructional coaching on how to do group work well could definitely be something that's pretty handy, right? For yeah. uh, in many, many contexts. Yeah. Um, really interesting. I wanted then to have a little bit of a think about actually this links really well to what you mentioned, the, the EEF guidance report and the mechanisms there, because one of the, the things that comes out there that is, is really closely linked, of course, to, to instructional coaching is this notion of, of giving teachers a chance to practice things. Um, and and again, the kind of notion of deliberate practice is something which has, has been quite popular and very closely linked into instructional coaching, although um, I guess that the work of Deans, Deans for Impact and others would sort of um, look at deliberate practices as one separate thing from that. And many ways you could get feedback, which would in include through instructional coaching. And I, uh, I just wanted to touch on that because that's something that, that sits at the heart of one of our units for achieving chartered teacher status for, for expert classroom practitioners, um, which is our development of teaching practice unit. And, and it, in essence, in that unit, a teacher has to select 
um, an area of their practice they want to de develop and go through some cycles of deliberate practice, getting feedback um, and improving what they're doing and reflecting on that. And and that's really one of the areas where we've kind of partnered up, why we're, we're here talking together today. Brilliant to be partnering with Step Lab because the work that teachers might do on improving their practice through Step Lab is a brilliant way that they can actually then say, well, here's my area that I've developed. Here's how I've developed it. Here's my reflections and be able to, through the Charter College, submit that then for assessment and for accreditation for part of their, their charter status journey and also to to achieve the um, award in developing teaching practice. So just wanted to kind of take take the chance to flag that, but also I guess to go a bit a bit deeper into this idea of practice, because it's not something that actually, when we think about kind of what teacher training looks like, is something that historically was very easy to do, that you kind of almost practice by being sort of thrown into the classroom, don't you? Um, where in other sectors that are perhaps seen as more high risk, so I'm thinking that the medical sector, for example, you would more explicitly practice what you're doing before you you do it for real. And there's been some really interesting work done in that space. And just speaking very recently to to Sam Sims, who's um, uh, with, with colleagues been looking at how kind of simulation is used in that area, which was something I looked at as part of my PhD. And also recently to Robbie Coleman, who's doing really interesting work with, with using tech to practice and go through different scenarios. Um, and again, it, it kind of all fits into this same space uh, as this idea of deliberate practice, which can feel, and, and as part of coaching, can feel quite uncomfortable kind of mm. practicing something in front of someone, not for real, um, can't it? But but I guess it's just such a, a vital part of actually how we can get better at something. I know that the third time I do a presentation, that like I present to adults a lot now, it's a million times better than the first time. I still mm. haven't quite got myself into the habit of doing a full run through, which I absolutely should based on what I've clearly seen from the research, but also my own experience that, you know, you every time you do it, you get a bit better. You realize which bits of the explanation work better. You realize which bits resonate. And so creating that that time and that focus on practice is, is really important. So just interested in your reflections on the different ways that we can help trainee teachers in particular, but but teachers across their careers and whole to really practice these, these key strategies they might use. Yeah, I mean, I think practice is so important, but as you say, just incredibly difficult to get right in the context of learning to teach. One of the, the, the really stark ways I realised this was by watching, so I watched some coaching about three years ago, and I watched um, a coach, coach a teacher on like doing wait time. So basically, uh, uh, you know, ask a question, wait for X amount of time so that every student has to think and then and then go to them for an answer. Um, so I, I sat watching this coach and the coach said, OK, so we're going to practice, um, you know, you're doing wait time now. So if you just want to think of some questions to ask me and the teacher looked a bit nonplussed and the coach said, well, how, you know, you could ask me just like what I ate yesterday. And so I saw uh, the teacher say like, OK, so this, uh, move into rehearsal and say, like, what did you have for dinner yesterday? Waiting cat and I was like so obviously found that hideously awkward even from the position of watching it but I was like racking my brains like what is wrong with that it's in a sense it's doing some deliberate practice of a thing but it's it's it felt to me so incredibly unlikely to help that teacher make a change to their practice and when I dug into the research on you know what makes deliberate practice good quality one of the most important things that jumped out is contextual realism it's easy to think of contextual realism being like go to the teacher's classroom um, because like that's where they teach. Right. But I think doing that, doing that rehearsal in the teacher's classroom is just as unlikely to work as doing it anywhere else. 
So I was thinking like, well, what is the context of teaching which we must practice in? Like, what is the context in which, what does it mean to have a realistic context? And actually it, it jumped out at me that like the realistic context is like a lesson the teacher's really going to teach in the very near future. Just to reframe that wait time thing, if if I was to watch that coach, and this is the feedback I gave, it was like, right, before you do any rehearsal, any deliberate practice, ask the teacher, what is the next lesson they're teaching where they want to put this into practice? Open the lesson up, talk about what the learning objective is, what this, the, the, student, the teacher wants the students to learn, script some questions they're actually going to ask, go to that moment in the lesson, and this is the important word coming, rehearse that moment in the lesson. I sometimes think that deliberate practice is not a particularly useful term for teachers. Like, and actually yeah, there is some kind of like deliberate practice doesn't work for teachers um, stuff going around at the moment on Twitter. And like, I've got to be honest, like I agree with a lot of it, but I do think in fact, the research tells us that rehearsal works really well. Now rehearsal isn't deliberate practice. Deliberate practice uh, works really well in, in um, domains where what you're practicing is quite neat, like chess, but Teaching isn't neat like that, but rehearsal means exactly like you were talking about, Kat, when you're doing your presentation. Rehearsal means taking a bit of the whole performance and doing it until you master it in a way that's smooth and then beginning to integrate it into the rest of the piece. If we think back to the wait time teacher, what that what rehearsal looks like is, okay, so this moment in the lesson, go. The teacher then asks their questions to the students, stop, feedback, run that moment in the lesson over and over again, uh, until it's really smooth and then actually start to throw in some difficulties too. What happens if this time I'm going to be a student that doesn't know the answer? What would you do then? I feel like that kind of gets rid of the awkward factor too. It's really awkward to role play anything. It feels fake. You know, it feels a bit icky. You know, suddenly it's like, okay, so we've just, you know, you're going to be teaching this lesson tomorrow. Teach it now. Feels significantly less fake and awkward. And I feel like actually there's a bit of a job to be done to reframe deliberate practices like, rehearsal which I think is much more normal as a thing to do when you're getting ready to do a performance of something. As you started talking about that I immediately jumped back to when I did a, a job interview once which was uh, one of these kind of micro teachers where you've got four adults pretending to be a class and I found it incredibly weird and incredibly difficult but on reflection I didn't think this at the time but it was as you were talking about that that made me think it wasn't actually really that it was a group of adults sort of loosely pretending to be children. The weird thing was that I was told pick any topic at all that you want to teach them about and it was that that because I you know I genuinely spent the vast amount of the majority of the time because this wasn't for an English teaching job it was um it, you know something a bit broader than that so it was uh I was what, what you know I don't know anything about that I haven't been told they're supposed to be year nines it's just you're going to teach something to a group of people yeah and, you, and it was honestly just obsessed with how do I figure out what on earth to to actually teach them and that's the bit that's not authentic right if I'd been told there's going to be a group of people pretending to be year nines teach them xyz and that was part of my kind of my general practice that would have felt fine so really really interesting um i'm really conscious that we've been talking for ages which has been been brilliant i guess last thing to do really is to just ask if there's anything um really that's going on at step lab that you'd like to to flag anything that's coming up that we should be aware of any opportunities really because it's been been great to hear uh, your insight you know we've we've gone far beyond where i thought we might in this conversation but that's why i love having the chance to do this so anything more that you'd like to to share from your work it'd be interesting to talk about kind of like uh, some of the work we're doing and how it might interact with um guys who are working with you to achieve chartered status we've got just released uh, a new training program for coaches, building coaching skills modules on Step Lab, and and what they are is like 
we've basically broken down me and Harry Fletcherwood, Harry Fletcherwood and I, I should say, um, Harry Fletcherwood and I uh, thought really hard about how to break down coaching into its uh, high quality coaching into its component parts. For each of those component parts, we wrote an evidence summary, we filmed models, we've got tasks to do. So the idea that um, is that coaches and mentors can go on StepLab and can work through these 20 10-minute modules and pop out at the end of it, you know, knowing a, a load about how to be a great coach. And so the way I think we're going to be working together, or one of the ways we're going to be working together is that um, mentors that are also working with you can, can, can use having worked with our building coaching skills modules as evidence, um, as evidence towards, uh, you know, chartered status. Likewise, we just did the first of our Certificate in Coaching Leadership courses, which is an in-person course for people who are kind of systems leaders, whether they're thinking about leading coaching at a school or whether they're leading coaching through a trust. And we're just going to be focusing really hard on how to implement really effectively using kind of what I and what Harry and what members of the Step Lab team have learned from, you know, lots and lots of experience implementing coaching in schools. And likewise, anyone who's on that course We'll, we'll, we'll be able to use that as, as evidence uh, to, towards a charter status as well. So those are two super exciting things that we're doing, but also ways that I think, um, you know, we can work together, which is also incredibly exciting for us too. It is. We're, we're so thrilled to be at this kind of point in our, our journey. Some of us, who, some of people who sort of followed the, the charter college since our start will know um, we've been kind of working on how we make chartered status something that is achievable um, for as many teachers and mentors and school leaders as possible. Um, we want it to be something that everyone can, uh, can aspire to be. And we don't want it to be something that is creating unnecessary work or a tick box activity. It's it's something that is, you know, it's a, a really high quality mark of, of people who've really worked on developing their practice and their expertise and engaging with evidence. Um, and we want that to continue to be the case, but we want it to be something that is worthwhile undertaking as well. And by partnering with organizations like yourselves, we're offering the kind of a accreditation and the assessment and the recognition of that but actually they can undertake the learning that's right for them with organizations like yourself um, and absolutely so teachers who are being coached through it can look at our teacher pathway mentors who are being involved as coaches can use that leaders can perhaps look at their their leadership of instructional coaching and in that way we can kind of recognize all of this work and learning that's going on and uh, and, and brilliant kind of practice that's being developed through platforms like StepLab and bring that together in recognition through our chartered pathways. So really excited that we're, we're just really at the, the beginning of these kinds of partnerships and, and looking forward to more opportunities to see how we can support teachers together. But it's been an absolute privilege to, uh, to talk today. Really fascinating to hear your insights on some areas that I think are really interesting. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking again more, I'm sure, and being involved more as we move forward. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed today's episode and would like to access more research evidence for your classroom, you can join the Chartered College of Teaching for as little as $1.96 per month at www.chartered.college. And remember to download TeacherTap free from your app or Play Store to share your views, opinions and experiences from the classroom. Every voice makes the picture clearer.